passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. And I think the depth of the lineup played out as well, but more so, I think the lineup coalesced the way Joe Madden put it together. I thought it was a toss-up a, a little bit, but I would give the edge going into the Cubs. As for the first time in 71 years, the Chicago Cubs have stamped their ticket to the World Series. Welcome back to The Run. This is episode six of a 10-part series on mm-hmm. the Cubs' remarkable 2016 run through the Major League Baseball postseason. I'm Matt Spiegel of 670 The Score in Chicago, along with, as always, Roy Wood Jr. Now, in this series, you've probably noticed a bit of a pattern, right? We'll do an episode on some of the on-field stuff. Then we'll, you know, we'll step away and talk to a baseball mind about some of the bigger and deeper stuff. Like we did that episode with Theo. We talked with Joe Madden. But I think we want to do something a little bit different here, Matt. In this episode, you and I got to take a breath and give a little perspective on what exactly it meant at this point. Because we've gotten to a point where the Cubs beat the Dodgers and they're in the World Series. And that was this epic monkey removed from the back. But then there's three days to wait, and here comes the World Series. So what the hell does that all mean? Who are they playing? What's going on? Has the goal now shifted back to winning the whole thing? As long as you're here, that seems like that would be a nice idea. Now, later in the episode, we're going to be joined by a wonderful baseball writer, the homie Tom Verducci, and he's going to discuss a lot of these things, too, including what this meant for Cleveland. But mm-hmm. tell, me what, tell me if this analogy plays for you, Matt. You get on the t- matter of fact, we'll keep it. We'll keep it Chicago. You go to Great America up there in Gurney Mills, Illinois. The roller coaster that you're scared us of. That clink, 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 clink as you go up the first ascent to do the first yeah. drop. Is that three days in Chicago? That clink, clink, clink before the wild ride begins. That's a good call. I think you're like three quarters of the way up when those three days begin, so the view's already great. 
You know, like you're there, <laughs> you are in, you have had some of the ride already. It's, it's a beautiful day. This is this is really fun, man. I'm so glad we did this. I'm so glad we, the ride was worth it so up this, through fighting the traffic. So then this is the midpoint in the roller coaster then where you're going through the second clink. You've already rode some of the roller coaster. The Giants and yeah. the Dodgers were the first twist and turns. And now this is that second moment to right yourself, wipe the slobber from your mouth, enjoy the view, but know that you have more coming up. Was all of Chicago excited or just like the north side? of Chicago. No, the whole thing, the whole thing. You couldn't, you couldn't help it. If you were a White Sox fan, you saw the magic of the moment and you'd been watching the five-year build that we've talked about, Roy, and you appreciated just how well it was done, how remarkably efficient the rebuild had been. And here they are. And let's face it, those people that you bicker with most of the time, those Cub fans that White Sox fans love to bicker with, most of them are your friends and your family. Like, there's part of you that was genuinely, empathetically happy for people to get a chance to experience this. And they did. The White Sox won it in 2005. I think maybe if they hadn't won it 11 years earlier, they might have been a little more bitter. But see, then, but that's, but that, but I thought that that was part of the resentment from White Sox fans to Cub fans was that the White Sox run was not treated with the same level of reverence and there wasn't the same right. togetherness in the city. Do you think that's part of because of where we were culturally and also where Chicago was culturally at that point. In 05, the White Sox didn't have Obama and the magic of Chance the Rapper. And, I mean, even Kanye was still doing some things. Like, did you not have—were White Sox fans able to truly— and I mean this, were they truly able to come over their jealousy of their, you know, of their sibling going on the same journey and seeming to get more accolades and more reverence along the way? Well, this is where my rose-colored lenses with which I view the world perhaps uh, made me see it a little more positively. Uh Roy, guilty as perhaps charged by you uh, there. Because you're right, man. Because here, this was a time when ESPN would say, remember, Chicago has only won a few titles ever in their athletic history. And they'd show a whole chart of when the Bulls won and the Bears won and the Blackhawks. And they completely omitted the White Sox. And White Sox fans are like, see, nobody respects us. F you, everybody. So that was definitely there underneath but I I do feel like there was there was some city unity around the Cubs because it, you know it's a good opportunity to really talk about what the Cubs have meant historically it's not just a strict north side south side thing it's not that simple frankly there are a smaller number of White Sox fans than everybody that lives on the South Side. There are plenty of South Side Cubs fans. There's The city is much more Cub than, than White Sox overall, and even the most ardent White Sox fans, I think, would agree with that. But part of it is, and I'm interested in talking to you about this, Roy, because I know your father did a radio show with Ernie Banks, and I've talked to many older African-American Chicagoans who say that in the 60s and the 70s, the team they loved was the Cubs. Whether they were South Side or West Side or lived on the North, it doesn't matter. But, like, they would watch. And there's Fergie Jenkins and Billy Williams and Ernie Banks. Hey, he did it. Ernie Banks got number 500. Everybody on your feet. This is it. There are people that look like them, look like their uncles who came to Chicago during the Great Migration. Like, this was 
the bond. If you're watching sports on TV, the Cubs were your guys and not the White Sox for a lot of people. Yeah, Andre Dawson looked like that uncle that let me try a Budweiser when I was nine. <laughs> that's a true story. That's a conversation for a different podcast. It's it's very the thing that I found most interesting was just how much the rise of the Cubs. There was just this melding of race and class that you normally don't see in Chicago, which is, you know, to a lot of degrees could be, you know, fiscally and racially segregated in terms of where people of a certain tax bracket mingle and where people of a certain race mingle. But everything I saw on TV, it was everybody just all to get like, hey, look, whatever differences, whatever we got going on right now, we're just going to forget about that. And we're going to focus on the co- I know that there's a presidential election that's been dividing the country and Trump mm-hmm. and Hillary's emails and all of that. I don't care. This week, the roller coaster is clink, clink, clinking up. Yeah, man. And, and you know, and, and the thing is, I think there's this perception in part because the White Sox were so cool in the 90s with that badass logo that debuted and then Easy e and NWA are rocking that logo and that along with the Raiders <laughs> logo became so purely and powerfully black, right? Yeah. And, and, and the Cubs north side yuppie thing kind of grew through the 80s with Budweiser and Harry Carey and it became this more disparate fan base, at least uh, under the perception. But really, as you go decades back, it's a lot more unified than that racially. And still, like, you know, if you go to Wrigley Field, I mean, now and certainly five years ago, 10 years ago, I mean, I've, I've sat in the stands. Right, this sounds terrible. This sounds like I have a black friend. I once sat in the stands <laughs> with a black person, Roy. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is I have talked to black people in the stands at Wrigley who were like, I'm a Cub fan for 50 years because my dad was and my grandparents were. Like, it is embedded in, in more of the culture than just Lily White, Northside Chicago. No doubt about it, the Cubs are on their way. Well, I'm happy to get into it with Tom Verducci about this. Also, I want to talk to him a little bit about Cleveland because the Indians weren't no, like, this wasn't some team that was just a pushover. It's not like they weren't, you know, already kicking ass, you know, as well. This is a daunting team, and it's a good moment for us to pause and say, oh, what was happening in the American League, that whole other half of baseball? The Red Sox were great. A lot of people were dreaming and hoping all year of Cubs-Red Sox. It's still the Great World Series that that hasn't happened, that people want to happen, thought that was the year. Curse versus curse, even though the Red Sox had already vanquished it. Also, Theo Epstein took a whole bunch of people from Boston, not just players, but like front office people. And so that would have been a, a big thing. But Cleveland is the team that that swept the Red Sox out of the playoffs early. But there was a little revenge thing with Theo because Terry Francona, the manager of the Indians, was, was Theo's good friend and manager of the Red Sox when they broke the curse. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also the Indians were just damn good. They had a great bullpen. Andrew Miller's this vicious lefty. And Francona was being creative and, like, bullpenning his way through the playoffs. They were a scary bunch. They had only lost one game. They manhandled the Blue Jays 4-1 to one in the uh, ALCS to get to the World Series. So it's not like they weren't, you know, a formidable opponent. But in the meantime, it was just Chicago going, hey, for three days— Everything's beautiful. 
and, and you know Cleveland, this is the year where LeBron had just won, finally. LeBron had won, and that was a big deal. But the, the Indians, they haven't won a World Series since 1948. So it's like it was the two teams that both have to do it, both have to get over the hump. LeBron had just won a championship. The Indians were dominating. And the Browns had already announced that they were getting rid of Johnny Manziel at quarterback. So, <laughs> like, earlier that year, they were like, oh, yeah, Johnny football's out. We're a whole new Cleveland Browns team. So they had reason to believe that the championship should be theirs as well. All right, coming up on the run, our guest is the baseball writer Tom Verducci, forever with Sports Illustrated, just a brilliant writer. And you see him on TV with Fox Sports as their uh, on-field reporter for their biggest baseball games, including the World Series in 2016. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. (laughs) Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. So with Tom Verducci now here on the run, and Tom, your book, The Plan, is like scripture for Chicagoans who want to fully understand and comprehend the first five years of the Theo Epstein experience. It's a remarkable five-year turnaround that works a little bit too perfectly, perhaps. But um, there's a a section in, in your book where you talk about that series against the Dodgers, the NLCS in 2016, because it's easy to forget for some just getting to the World Series was really the goal. That was the big thing, was like, could they ever get there? And in the middle of that series, um, and you write about Anthony Rizzo, among others, struggling offensively, it looked pretty dire, didn't it, in the middle of that series against the Dodgers? Yeah, it did. I mean, the Dodgers, there was a period there in the first half of that series where it looked like the Dodgers had their number. They just weren't hitting at all. I'm talking about the big guys in the middle of the lineup. And you wondered if, you know, this was the end of the road for the Cubs because, listen, they'd been there before with the Mets the year before. You thought maybe they weren't quite ready. But now you're thinking this is all about curses if you believe in those kinds of things because (laughs) this was a much better team. And that 16 team, people forget, maybe they don't. But, you know, the regular season Cubs team in 16 was a juggernaut. I mean, they allowed the fewest runs. They scored the second most runs. They had the best defensive team. So... This team, to me, should have been a World Series team. But again, you're up against history when you play for the Cubs, and that seemed to come in play. So I started to wonder if maybe that history, or if you want, use the word pressure and expectations, 
where we're starting to come to play because those were some nervous at bats. I'm talking about the Bryants, the Rizzo's, guys who've been around. And to me, I look back and I think about there were a lot of turning points in that postseason. But if you look specifically at the NLCS, I thought it was the home run by Addison Russell that allowed the the Cubs to really start to get their breath and realize, okay, we're all right here. And I thought it turned the tide, at least emotionally. I'm not sure if they felt that in the dugout, but watching them that postseason, that that series, NLCS, I thought that was a key turning point. 0 for 2 with two strikeouts tonight. The 0-1. High fly ball in the center. The shortstop, Russell. A big one. Two-run shot. 3-1 Chicago in the sixth. And there's a moment, Tom, where Anthony Rizzo borrows a teammate's bat. I read that story for the first time in the plan. Tell people about that. Yeah, and he doesn't do that too often. And Anthony's a guy who, you know, we've seen him over the years, two-strike approaches, really. He'll choke up on the bat. Uh, it's kind of what he does. You know, he takes his lower half out of it. It's really a great two-strike approach. But, you know, in that at bat against the Dodgers in the NLCS there, he did borrow. He went to a different size bat, weight bat, and he didn't choke up with two strikes. It was really the first time I've seen him do that in that 16th season. Lo and behold, he hits a home run. Great defense. And a smart, terrific That's a spot to me is another big turning point in the game where the Dodgers, I thought, had their number pitching wise, that their game plan executing to perfection. Little adjustment by Anthony Rizzo paid big dividends. Tom, the Cubs eventually do, um, you know, as you say, off the Russell Homer, go, okay, we can still play professional baseball. We know what we're doing here, we belong. Do you feel like that? And just me as a lifelong Cubs fan, I'm going to be honest with you, man. They got to the World Series. That was enough for me. I was good. Even if they lost, I was going to still buy the World Championship T-shirt somewhere on the black market. I was going to find it. Do you think that on the other side of defeating the Dodgers and going on to face the Indians, that that was enough for Cubs fans? Or were they justified in, not arrogantly, were they justified in going, no, damn it, we, we can take this whole thing? I will tell you my own feeling was that Cubs fans were happy to have the World Series. I really believe that. Uh, Sure, you get greedy once you get there, but that was sort of a luxury at that point for me. I think a lot of people grew up saying, you know what, one time in my life, I want to see a World Series game at Wrigley Field. You know, maybe my grandfather told me what it was like back in the day, but there was a palpable feeling that just to play in the World Series Maybe it wasn't enough, but it was satisfying. And I think the outpouring of support when they clinched the NLCS was about that, about going to the World Series. It wasn't so much that, hey, we got a chance to win the World Series. We're going there. So I I think, listen, deep down, I'm not sure Cubs fans would admit it now, but deep down, I did get the sense that they were happy just to get to the World Series. Well, you know what decades of Cubdom had been defined by before this. And then Theo Epstein comes, and it's right there at the beginning uh, of your book. Why was the plan that Theo brought so audacious but sensible? What, what was it about the plan and the idea that, that made sense and made this even seem plausible? Well, I mean, the phrase gets used far too much, but I think it's true. Changing the culture. In this case, what does it mean? It means raising expectations. 
And it gets back to kind of Cubs fans being happy about having the World Series and maybe we have a chance to win it because expectations always were pretty low in Chicago with the Cubs. I mean, you could be a Cubs fan and have a good time as long as the hot dog was hot and the beer was cold and the sun was out, right? Yep. It didn't have so much to do with great championships or flying flags on top of Wrigley. And I think Theo really needed to change that, that he was dealing with a group of guys here that he knew he had a really good core of young position players, that much he knew. And he built it around those guys. And it was interesting that his plan was, those are the ones who really changed the culture. Pitchers, they're gonna pitch every fifth day. They kind of hang out among themselves. I always equate position players and pitchers to like wildebeest and zebras. You know, they're on the same pl the plane out there, but they don't really interact <laughs> that much. And as Theo said, if you're talking about really changing the culture, it's gotta be those guys that are in the lineup every day. And that's why when he, he looked at guys and scouted them and or traded for them, it was about how does this guy fit in? What's the culture? Of course, he knew Anthony Rizzo from his days back in Boston. Chris Bryant, when they drafted him number two overall, it was a meeting face-to-face -face that convinced him, hey, this is a guy I want to be our franchise player. Kyle Schwarber, guy who played linebacker in high school and played baseball with that kind of mentality. That's what Theo wanted. So... Most teams would tell you they build around position uh, pitchers because it's kind of harder to do. He went the opposite way, and it was about position players, and he thought, and he pulled this off somehow, I can go find enough pitching. And he did that with great trades and free agency. But it, really the core of this team came out of the draft and player development with position players. Did that culture, did that ideology spread within the locker room when it was time to head into the World Series for game one, like inside the locker room, was there anybody going the opposite of the fans, going, no, beating the Dodgers is not enough. We want more. Yeah, I think players had a different mindset. There's no doubt about that. They knew how good they were. There's no question about that. And, and I think they knew. In fact, they talked openly about it. Now, most teams searching for a championship, they'll kind of tiptoe around it, don't want to come out and say it's World Series or bust. This team, and I've never heard a team do this, they talked about going to the parade they won, when they won the World Series, not if. I think a lot of that came from Anthony Rizzo. So don't get me wrong. When I talk about expectations, I'm talking about the Cubs nation, if you will. I think among the players, man, they visualized it. They saw it. They were not happy to be at the World Series. If they didn't win that World Series, they would have went home really disappointed that they didn't win it because their objective was to win the darn thing. I think that's like a level of arrogance that only comes from Chicago sports <laughs> locker rooms. Like, I think the only thing that tops that is maybe the Bears doing the Super Bowl shuffle during the regular <laughs> season. <laughs> it wasn't even hey, the playoffs. Man, it's, it's all about confidence, right? I, I do think this team had a little bit of that swag. I do. And you look at the way they their comeback wins in the postseason to me. You don't pull that off unless you're supremely confident, right? Whether it was beating the Giants and that – I think the biggest game of the postseason, game four, the DS four. coming from behind. The greatest comeback to clinch a postseason series ever. Down three games to one, the Indians, and down in the fifth game, coming back to win it all. So listen, this was a great rally team because they took a lot of walks. They put the ball in play, but I think especially because of how much they wanted it. It's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Tom, when when Theo oversaw the revamping of the locker room at Wrigley Field, one of the things they did was update the medical facilities to such a high level that when guys needed to rehab, they didn't have to go out to Arizona to do it. They could rehab there as part of the team. And because of that, Kyle Schwarber had been around the team that entire year. Even though he was hurt, he had been around and in town. And yet still, when this idea of him possibly coming back to play in the World Series came up, none of us really believed this was possible. When did that even become a legitimate thought for Theo and Joe Madden to consider? Well, I think it became a legitimate thought after they won the NLCS. And knowing Kyle Schwarber and that football mentality, they thought there was a chance that they could do something. Now, when we heard he was rehabbing and taking some at bats in Arizona, it was like, well, you know what? That's great. Maybe he'll be able to, I don't know, <laughs> pinch hit if he's, if even if he's on the roster. Little did we know that they're bringing in some minor league pitchers to throw to him. They're wearing out the pitching machine. They're basically putting his rehab on fast forward to get about a month of playing time in seven days or five days. It was crazy that he was able to get timing down like that. And, I mean, no one expected him to contribute the way that he did in the postseason. That was a major injury. Tearing your ACL. Hasn't seen live pitching in six months. What could he possibly do in the World Series? Maybe taking it back. Maybe be a, a, almost like a decoy off the bench. That was storybook <laughs> stuff. Nope. Hit 400. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of anything in baseball that's – comparable to missing six months and coming back and being able to spit on Andrew Miller's sliders in the World Series? <laughs> no, because you're doing it again in the World Series against some of the best pitchers and certainly what I thought the best bullpen in baseball. You know, that's the separator. You may come back after missing six months or a year and, you know, ease your way back in in terms of regular season games. But no, in the spotlight, the pitching that he saw – I mean, probably the best comp is, maybe this is overstating it, but Ben Hogan, right? With that terrible car crash and came back and won a major his first time back. People didn't think he'd walk again. I mean, we knew Kyle would play again at some point. We didn't think it was going to happen in the World Series. And they got four games with him as a DH, all because of the All-Star game when <laughs> yep. the Cubs players sat. Right? So that, that yeah. worked in their favor. <laughs> the ultimate irony, right? The Cubs have, what, six All-Stars. They don't play in the game. They lose. The National League loses the game. So now American League has home field advantage. For those who don't remember, that was, you know, this time it counts, home field advantage on the line in the All-Star game. And the Indians get home field advantage, which seems like a huge advantage. I mean, nobody had won a game seven since 79. 
And there's a reason for that. It, it is a home field advantage. You, you've got that in this case. You didn't really earn it, but you got it from the All-Star game. And you're thinking that's to Cleveland's advantage, but it turned out to be to the Cubs' advantage because Kyle Schwarber, obviously, he could only start a game in, in terms of being able to DH. So he gets four starts, including that historic Game 7. Let's talk a little bit about the curse on the other side of the field with the Indians. You know, going into this series, what was the feeling on the Cleveland side? Yeah, well, Cleveland, obviously, now they have the longest streak without a championship, but there was a lot of the same anxieties, if you will, uncertainties from the Cleveland fans about whether they could actually get this done. But I think a great sense of their confidence, whether it's the players or the fans, came from that bullpen. I mean, I thought Terry Francona was as good as anybody running a bullpen. And you saw the way he leveraged Andrew Miller throughout that postseason. Really kind of changed the way baseball games are played and managed by putting his best reliever in the game in critical points, even as early as the sixth inning, to put out some fires. And I thought as long as the Indians had a lead, and I'm sure they felt this way as well, they could win the World Series because you couldn't really come from behind against that Cleveland bullpen. It was so deep. Francona was so good at leveraging his guys. That was the one big advantage I thought Cleveland had coming into the series, that if the games are decided late, they've got a lead, you're not going to chase them down. Tom, we live in a town where we watched Michael Jordan win six titles in six chances. We watched the 85 Bears win one Super Bowl and then fade How will history look at the Cubs? Yeah, I think the magic of a singular championship in this case overwhelms whatever kind of underachievement you want to say because there was one game in that World Series the Cubs started six players who were 24 and younger. That had never happened in the World Series before. This was a young team, and you're looking at it and saying, whoa, we got a window that's just opening here. Who knows how many championships, plural, here that this team can win. It didn't happen, obviously. Uh, It's hard to repeat. We've never seen anybody do it now in 20 years. The gauntlet to get through the postseason is just incredibly hard. The depth of really good teams, I think, is better than it's been back in the 50s or 60s, certainly. So there's reasons why it doesn't happen. But I think the championship is so special, it can stand on its own. On its own. Yeah, you'd want more if you're a Cubs fan. If you're Rizzo and Bryant and Baez and those guys, yeah, you wanted more out of this. But I I think it's the greatest championship of our lifetime when you think about all sports. And and I thought that going in, guys. I was thinking to myself, if the Cubs ever actually win the World Series, I don't know that I'll see anything bigger than this in my lifetime. And that's why I felt obligated to actually write a book about it. I was like, I can't let this historic event go without really kind of memorializing it. So – Yeah, I get it. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the 86 Mets, where the 86 Mets were an incredibly talented young team. And and you thought they were going to have multiple championships as well. And that didn't happen. And I thought the Cubs had that kind of potential. But I would dwell more on the fact that they got the biggest championship in sports. and, And that's enough for a while. Not for another 108 years, but it's enough for a while. What did the Cubs run in 2016 mean for baseball? And I mean that in the sense of when we talk about the McGuire-Sosa run, the race to 72, we talk about the 94 season that wasn't, 
and what could have been with that. Where do you think this 2016 Cubs run ranks in some of the greater moments, you know, in baseball? Well, I can put it up there with the 04 Red Sox for very similar reasons, where you had people who weren't even baseball fans plugged into what was going on with the Cubs. I mean, it it was just an unbelievable narrative. Um, You knew all the history. If you weren't familiar with it, you certainly learned about Billy Goats and Wrigley and uh, lovable losers and all this stuff was part of the narrative. But to me, it gets back to when baseball is at its best, it really connects communities and people. And I think it does it more than any other sport. You know, you can say there are other national pastimes. There are certainly national teams. Certainly the NFL has a ton of national teams where no matter where you live, you might be rooting for that team. But baseball really does connect communities. Um, It's so involved in the fabric of a community and partly because they play every day, right? You're talking about a narrative that changes every single day. It's not once a week. It's not twice a week. So you could live and sort of die with the ups and downs of a baseball season. And throughout that month of October, you got that with the Cubs. So it was an easy team to, even if you weren't rooting for the Cubs, to follow the Cubs. And again, I think I go back to the 04 Red Sox. That was so meaningful for what it meant, not just for their fans, but even for deceased relatives. I mean, grandparents and great-grandparents who who never got to see their team win. And I know when you saw the outpouring of support was similar around Chicago with people happy for their, their fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers, people who didn't live to see it, but certainly were a part of the whole Cubs history. So... That connection to me runs deeper than I think any other sport. And I I think that was the best part about it. I mean, (laughs) we had pictures on the Fox broadcast of some sisters in the stands and people who are in their 90s rooting for the Cubs to win. I mean, that doesn't happen much, if at all, in other sports. So connecting generations, connecting communities, that's the best part about baseball. That's that was the best part of the, about the Cubs winning. That was the thing that was lost on me until game. I went to game seven and I'm a first generation Cubs fan. No one in my family cares about baseball. My dad kind of sorta, but I was the one in front of the TV every afternoon watching Steve Stone and Harry Carey. And when the Cubs won and I looked around and I'm cheering, but there's so many people crying and calling relatives in the stands. And like, it was this, this weird moment of commiseration. Well, first of all, I got to start with the fact that the place was loaded with Cubs fans. I mean, there are kids going to college today and their tuition is being paid by Cubs fans because a lot of Indian season ticket holders couldn't resist selling their seats because Cubs fans had to be there for game seven. So there were a lot of Cubs fans in the stands. And I think that speaks to their fervent uh, passion for their team that almost there was not a price they wouldn't meet to be able to be in the stands to see history or at least a chance to see I'm not going to say what I paid, but I will say I had no hotel. I flew in the day of, and I went back to the airport and slept there. You see that? So if you, if the game's in Chicago, I don't think there's many Cubs fans who are selling their, their tickets to Indian fans. But it happened vice versa in Cleveland. So the place has a lot of Cubs fans in it. That was really different to me. Game 7 World Series, the road team's got a lot of support. But I will say this, and I'll believe it as long as I live. The Cubs do not win that game without the rain delay. Now, I know we're going to talk about the rain delay in future episodes, but since we have you here, what can you tell us about that moment? Because you were on the field. You had 
probably the closest view of anybody not in uniform. What can you tell us about what was said in the locker room during that rain delay? I was actually on the Cubs side of the field. I was literally in their dugout when it started to rain. And I'll never forget the dugout was emptying out. There was only one guy left, and that was Aroldis Chapman sitting on the top of the dugout. Despondent, whatever word you want to use, he was a physical, emotional wreck. I could see that. And I heard somebody call him saying, hey, we've got a meeting. And Chapman got up, and he's walking by me, and he literally reached out to kind of hold me to steady himself. And his eyes were wet. I don't want to say he was crying, but you could see the emotion because he had lost this lead that the Cubs had waited 108 years to get. And physically, he was spent. So I didn't know that there, what the meeting was about. I just knew that he was the last one in the dugout going back to the meeting. Well, 17-minute rain delay. When that team came back in the dugout, I heard and saw a different team. It sounded like a high school football team taking the field on Friday night. <laughs> it really was energized in that dugout. If you go back when Schwarber gets that leadoff single, you know he turns and starts yelling in the dugout. That's what was going on in the dugout before that base hit. You know, I have not heard that much cheering and noise and emotion at that point in a ball game late in the game. Usually things are pretty tight. Tight. That was a loose, fired-up bunch. So, no, I don't think they win the World Series without that. I felt, even before the run scored, the momentum had changed. And I didn't know that on the other side, a guy like Francisco Lindor goes back there, goes into the weight room, and takes a nap during the rain delay. That shows you how much th- there was a difference between how the two teams handled it. But I really think that reset the game for the Cubs, everything about it, emotionally, even physically to some extent. So I do believe that that was some divine intervention, if you will, that first of all, it was about a 72-degree night in Cleveland in uh, late October, November. November. When does that happen? And then it took uh, some divine providence to have rain falling to stop the game just enough, by the way, right? It yep. could have actually played through it, but Joe West stopped the game just enough to kind of hit that reset button for the Cubs. So that was a big part of the Cubs winning the championship. I'll always remember that because being down in the dugout, I could feel and hear the difference. Well, Tom Verducci, we can't thank you enough. We're about to get into our deep dive of episodes on the World Series, and you've reported it like crazy in your book. Is there anything that you still are curious about with regards to the World Series that you need Matt and I to get to the bottom of on the run? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. What do I need to get to the bottom of? Uh, You know, I'd love to know what was going through Trevor Bauer and Chris Bryant's mind because I thought the turning point in the World Series, the, the Indians had a lead in Game 5, and I talked about their bullpen, how good it was. And there was a point, they were six outs away, maybe even less than that, turning the game over to Shaw and, uh, and, and Miller and all those guys in the bullpen. And Bauer throws a fastball right down the middle to Chris Bryant. And everything switched at that point. Now the game's tied. It's a whole different ball game. You're not playing from behind. So I really wonder, what went into that pitch? Did Bryant know something? Was Bauer trying to sneak a fastball by him? Bad idea if that's what he was thinking. But I thought that was the biggest one singular pitch to set up the rest of the series. Ah, Matt, there you go. A burning question from Tom Verducci about the World Series. Look... It's, it's, if we're going to be honest, there's a lot of burning questions. 
I had a lot of burning questions about the World Series. And over the next three episodes, that is where we are going to focus. We are going to be joined by some more. Yo, we get David Ross and Sarah Spain. Yeah, man, I know Sarah is your pal. You guys have been tight. You have watched games in various stages of drunkenness in ballparks throughout the Midwest. Yes, we have. Um, and we will talk with her about the World Series. And I, I can't wait to talk with you about games one, two, and three, man. I was, I was close to it and still have things that I really need to look back on and delve further into and looking forward to that like crazy, especially game three at Wrigley when it was the first time a World Series game was there since 45. So it, there'll be stuff you have not heard, um, including some more of Pat Hughes on game seven in particular, which is amazing. And all the game seven stories, man, like everybody we talked to were grabbing a game seven story along the way. And we will get there with an amalgamation of, of excellence. Yeah, but this is, this is, this was a seven game series. So, you know, we got to take this elephant bite by bite. We have to do one episode just on game seven. It was too massive. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm down to eat that meal. Again, you know, I'm the, I got to make sure not to load up on champagne on the front end. I don't get bubbly. <laughs> yeah, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to really delve into this because this really was a wild ass ride. And even within this roller coaster, there were so many dips and turns and loops. And when you think the roller coaster ride is ending, there's another dip. <laughs> you go down again. Yeah, and I think as we all know, you for emotional salvation, you have to go to Cleveland. I mean, that's just the home of, of emotional salvation. <laughs> yes, that's where you go for pain. The Run is a production of Odyssey in partnership with Major League Baseball. Jody Avergan of Roulette Productions is our executive producer. Justin Kaufman is senior producer. Mixing by Joanna Ketcher at Nice Matters. Our theme song is a cover of Steve Goodman's Go Cubs Go by Chicago's very own The Hood Internet. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley and Mike D. at Odyssey and Nick Trotta at Major League Baseball. Mitch Rosen, Dustin Hapley, and Russ Matera and everybody else at 670 The Score. Also to everyone at Odyssey and Major League Baseball who helped make this happen. Special thanks as well to Fred McGriff, Derek May, and Kyle Farnsworth's right hook. Paul Wilson was never the same. <laughs> Hey, Roy, did you like any players that were good at all? Yeah. Um, what was the one? Fukudome. Yeah. Kosuke Fukudome. He was good for like two months. He was really How good. How dare exactly you? Right. <laughs>